Welcome to False Bottom Girls, a podcast about the wonderful yet sometimes confusing world of beer and brewing. Hi, I'm Rachel Hudson, owner of Pilot Brewing and an Advanced Cicerone. Hi, I'm Jen Blair, sensory expert, home brewer, and Advanced Cicerone. Okay, welcome everyone to this episode of False Bottom Girls. I'm Jen, and that is Rachel. And you can't see, but I am pointing, indeed pointing to her. <laughs> and today we have a very special guest. We have Hannah Turner from the Montana State University Malt and Barley Quality Lab. And uh, she's going to answer some of our questions. As you know, if you've been listening to the last few episodes, we've been talking all about malt and barley. And Hannah is going to walk us through some of what that looks like from a inside of a quality lab. So Hannah, why don't you uh, introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah. So yeah, uh, I'm Hannah Turner. I'm the director of the Barley Malt and Brewing Quality Lab at Montana State University. We support uh, the full barley value chain. So that is working directly with farmers and growers and uh, our breeding program works to release varieties that are gonna be uh, stable and of high quality for our growers. But we also have to consider that barley has a lot of different end uses. And so we test our barley for agronomics, but we also look at malt quality and brewing quality as well so that we ensure that um, that stability maintains throughout. Um, Hannah has built the MSU, the Malt Quality Lab website is amazing. And there are a ton of great resources on it. And I recommend it if you're studying for any like advanced Cicerone, master Cicerone, or you just want to learn more about like malt and barley. What does a COA mean? What does it mean for a brewer versus a distiller? So Hannah and her team have built such a great website that there's so many resources on it. It's it's one of my favorite resources to use. Um, so good job. On oh, thanks so much. Yeah, we put a lot of energy into it and it's it feels really good to know that it's appreciated and, and actually useful for people. So that's great. Thank you. <laughs> good. So tell me a little bit about the, you mentioned barley breeding and we were talking right before we started recording. You have released a couple of new barley varieties from Montana State. Um, so tell us like what does the barley breeding process look like? How does that go from kind of the the idea to getting the variety approved. Yeah, yeah. So barley breeding, it's quite a resource intensive process. It takes about 10 to 12 years from an initial cross to when we have a variety that's actually ready to go out into the world um, and available for farmers. Uh, so in our program, Jeannie Sherman is our barley breeder and she truly has to be a little bit of a future seer. She needs to look 10 to 12 years down the road and understand what the needs of the industry are gonna be and start making crosses based on that. Um, so our crossing block each year, uh, there's weeks at a time where she's in the greenhouse and she's taking uh, parental barley lines that have traits of interest. So one of those lines is always gonna be something that is well adapted to our region, but maybe doesn't have a trait that we're interested in. So that could be something like agronomics or disease resistance, or we've got a lot of focus on flavor or you know, environmentally, we've seen some really dry years and most of Montana farming, uh, barley farming is under dry land conditions. So we have a big focus on drought tolerance and environmental stability. Um, so she'll do that crossing block where um, all of the different parents and she's hedging her bets a little bit, you know, crossing for lots of different things because seeing into the future is not the easiest thing, um, but you know, crosses for, for lots of different things that could have potential. 
Uh, and the other thing to keep in mind is that where we're taking different lines that have variation to them naturally, they're not necessarily all gonna flower at the same time. So that crossing block takes um, planting each of those different barley lines multiple times. So she'll plant one week, plant them all one week, wait a couple weeks, plant them all, wait a couple weeks, plant them all. And that goal is to get everything so that it's flowering at the same time. Uh, and then the crossing block involves, it's a, a tedious process. Barley is a self-pollinating plant, meaning that um, the pollen is produced within the floral structure. If you let the plant grow in the field, it will self-pollinate and mature into a seed naturally. But if you want to separate out that process to combine the genetics of two different plants, you have to, with tweezers and magnifying glasses, cut apart those structures and then very carefully introduce the specific pollen that you want to the plant um, to maintain the integrity of that crossing process. So several weeks of greenhouse work to uh, create those crossing blocks. And so she'll do that uh, twice a year, once for our spring program, and then also different timing for our winter program. Uh, once the crossing has been completed, um, the mature seeds that have uh, been produced through that, will then replant those over several uh, rotations just to allow them to grow and uh, mature, kind of fix the genetics and also pr to produce a little bit more seed of that. Um, those crossing block crosses will then create families. Um, those families initially have thousands of lines in them. And so those will go out to our fields um, around the fourth generation. And so we have fields that are local to us at MSU. And so for several years, we're planting them um, in their season and Jamie is making selections. Uh, early on, those selections are very much by field. She'll walk through the field with a paint can and you know, based on the height, based on the thickness of the, the barley, based on the um, you know, various things that she's looking at, a lot of it by feel because we don't have enough grain at that point to really make a lot of measurements. Um, and she'll mark the ones that we're keeping and those will be harvested and uh, returned to the field the following year. Um, early on, we're measuring things like protein. That's one of our, our primary things. It's just, it's something that we can measure on a small amount of grain. Um, after that, we're starting to look more at agronomics, the amount of yield that we're getting. Um, some of those lines will start going into uh, some disease studies and, and looking at, at different aspects like that. Um, and then around eight or nine years, we've, we've narrowed down. So each one of those years, we're making selections based on the information that we have available. Um, around the fifth generation, we're able to start malting and looking at malt quality as well. But about eight or nine generations in, we've got that narrowed down to just a few lines from that particular year's uh, crossing block. And those will start going into interstate trials where we have about 16 different locations around Montana. Oh, okay. uh, all of those lines will go and get planted there alongside varieties that are already commercially available and farmers would likely be working with. Um, and then the, the lines that are closest to being released from our program. That'll start to give it an idea of environmental stability. And from there, we narrow it down uh, to the final line that we want to release. Once a line is released, we're almost there, but not quite ready to actually send it out uh, for farmers to grow because at that point, we still only have a very small amount of that um, you know, pure lot of barley. Uh, so then it needs to go to our foundation seed program where for a couple of years, they're planting it and increasing it, uh, making sure that it maintains uh, varietal purity and increasing the amount of seed. And then, then at that point, we'll have enough that it, it could actually go out to growers. Okay. 
Cool. And I will just manifest this now. I one day want a barley variety named after me. So um, that might not necessarily be uh, something that you will be able to do for me, Hannah, but I'll just say it out loud. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so someday there will just be like the Blair barley variety or even the gin. Like I'm not picky, you know, yeah, you can, you, you, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> under yeah. the gin fluence barley. That's, that's what I'm looking for. <laughs> Blair, Blair barley has like a nice ring. It's almost like a tongue twister. Yes. Blair, yeah. Blair barley, Blair Blair Barry, Blair Barry. <laughs> you try it. Right. <laughs> this is hard. <laughs> Going back to, you know, being in the Southeast, it was just, um, was it, I think last year when Virginia Tech released their first variety, like specifically for the Southeast and, you know, like 10 to 12 years sounds so long ago, but just this year, the Craft Maltzers Guild celebrated their 10 years of, you know, of being in existence. And mm-hmm. it's, I remember talking with growers at Virginia Tech or breeders at Virginia Tech saying, um, and, you know, maltsters in the Southeast who went to them and said, hey, we want to grow barley. We want to grow two row barley for malting in the Southeast. And everybody was like, there's no way. Nope, can't, you know, can't happen. Um, That's that's not going to work. It's not going to be very good. And then, you know, like five years later, they had several varieties that they were growing Mm -hmm. throughout the Southeast. And, you know, and now there is a a barley variety that was bred specifically for the Southeast. And I, I just think that's a really cool thing. And it's, you know, 10 years from now is 10 years from now. So like, don't, you know, like it's, it's going to happen anyway. So it's not really going to be that long once you have that, that final product, yeah. um, you know, well, it's better than not having it. The other thing to consider too, is the goal of the barley feeding program, um, at least ours. And, and I would imagine that this would be true for most programs we would like to release a line each year. Um, our, you know, our main focus is malting barley and brewing, but there are other end uses. So that can also include forage and feed and food. Um, but our goal is to release something for, for one of those end uses each year. And so that means that 10 to 12 year process, there's a whole pipeline. And right. every year yeah. there's something at a stage of that pipeline. So all 10 to 12 years worth of product are happening every year. Um, right. And so that that makes it so that each year we've got something coming to its final stages and, and hopefully ready to go out to the world. Yeah, that's super yeah. cool. And so let's say that I am a a barley grower and I want to submit my barley to your lab for quality testing. Um, and I would imagine that do like do breeders submit it like if I'm growing barley specifically for craft malt or you know specifically for feed or is it like i i grew this barley let me tell me what it would be best at um what what is usually like the grower's intention when they're sending it to you yeah so if you're a grower and your intention is to grow malting barley you are going to use a specific variety that has been bred for that Um, a really good example is that so our program we are breeding for malting and for food um, beta-glucan is something that we measure quite intensively. Um, beta-glucan is the primary component of cell walls within the barley. Um, in the malting and brewing world, we want beta-glucan to be quite low because once it's solubilized into the wort, it can cause viscosity issues um, and be problematic for the brewing process. But in the food market, beta-glucan is also known as soluble fiber, and that's a great health thing. So for food barley, we're specifically breeding to get high beta-glucan 
So a grower wanting to grow malting barley is going to choose a specific line that's meant for malting because it's had that intention um, included in it before it was released. It will uh, make that grower much more successful at getting a malting barley uh, quality level out of it. That said, there are quite a few lots of barley that are intended for malting barley, but then the, you know, each year environmental challenges or um, you know, maybe we have a great year, we have lots of good barley and something that even, even though it's got good quality for malting, maybe it's not the best quality for malting. Um, so there oftentimes will be malting lines that are sold as feed or forage, uh, right. or sorry, as feed, um, just because the, the demand is there or the quality isn't there. Right. Um, in recent years, so we actually saw quite a spike in uh, demand for feed barley. And so the prices were actually higher for feed barley than it was for malting barley. So growers who had stocks in reserve were selling it because they could get a good price for it. Um, and that, you know, that makes total sense. Right. But, yeah, definitely so. But yes, as far as um, submitting, so there's, um, I guess, two, two ways that I can describe this. So on the first one, since we were talking about breeding programs, um, as a breeding program, you want to get a sense of what your agronomic qualities are of the lines you're looking at, and you're also interested in your malting qualities. Um, most breeding programs, they'll collect a lot of the agronomic data in-house. Um, however, being able to malt and test malt quality is something that's less common in public breeding programs. Mm -hmm. uh, so what a lot of them do, there's a program that's managed by the USDA. It's in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, and they malt and test lines for um, public programs. So there's about 16 or so different programs that send lines into this lab. They malt it, test, and then send the data back. Uh, the challenge with that is that they can only take so many samples. They're, they're working with groups all over the country. And so you can only send about 600 to 800 uh, samples per year. It's also a challenge because you get, you're in line, you're in a queue. They work through um, the material they get as they get it. And so if you're a breeding program and need to get data in time to be able to make selections and then replant the following year, that can be challenging to try and make that timeline work. Uh, so early on when uh, Jamie started in our, at our program, she knew right away that if I'm gonna make, if I'm gonna work towards uh, releasing lines that are of good quality for malting, the more information I can have malt quality wise about the lines that I'm working on, the better. And so right off the bat, she has started working towards establishing um, the lab that I now manage. And so she was hired in 2015. She hired me in 2016. We started the lab from scratch at that point. Uh, and with the intention of being able to malt and test our own lines, in addition to what we would send to the USDA lab, because it gives us more flexibility and timing, we produce six to eight times the amount of data, which is great for a program where you have thousands of lines to begin with, six to 800 um, might cover one trial, but we've mm -hmm. got 10 to 12 years worth of data that we're trying to evaluate. Um, so producing more data and then the hands-on piece has been really critical. Understanding what a COA means is so much more meaningful when you can be hands-on with the barley and watch it in its transformation during the malting process and then associate those numbers back to what your observations are in process. Uh, so we felt that that was a really critical piece to, to making our program um, much more robust and the, the knowledge that we're able to put into our selections. Right. Um, so that's the approach that breeding programs take. But as a craft maltster, 
um, starting a malt house has its own host of challenges and it's you know costs associated with it and learning curve um, to start a malt house and then also intensively do your own in-house quality testing is mm -hmm. is really um, a pretty steep hill to climb. And so what most maltsters do, they establish their malt house and put their focus there and then um, use programs like ours as a support network to give them that information back on their, their product. Uh, so we do both barley and malt testing. Uh, folks will send samples in. Um, we'll do for the barley, we do a barley or grain selection package. So it's not just necessarily barley, but uh, grain selection package that'll look at things like germination characteristics, protein, moisture, um, the full kind of picture to let you know, is this barley going to do well as a malt? Mm -hmm. um, we then, uh, we can, we don't do as much of it because our capacity is limited, but we are actually working to expand the capacity, both to support um, craft maltsters that might want to have their barley malted and, uh, you know, malted by us and then give them data back. Uh, or we are now supporting more and more uh, breeding programs that want to extend their capacity, but don't necessarily have the ability to start a malt, um, malt quality lab in-house. So we are testing for, uh, for growers, for maltsters, and for breeding programs, uh, malting and then reporting that data back. Uh, or alternatively, a malt house could directly send us the malt that they're creating, and then we will go through the process, which malt quality testing is essentially the initial stages of brewing. We're taking mm -hmm. malt, milling it, mashing it, creating a wort, and then most of the analytics that we do for that malt are based on uh, measurements on the wort. Okay, yeah, that's a really, I hadn't thought about it before, but I know, you know, we, we've talked about like Congress mashes and things. Uh, so yeah, it's, um, I just always, for me, it's like, oh yeah, you get the COA, like you do this, you do the stuff to get the COA and it's like, no, it, it, it really is just like doing a little, a little mini brew day yeah, to see yeah. how that, that works. So that's a really good, I like that as an example. What kinds of like in-house testing do you recommend or do most, most maltsters do? Like they're not going to do the entire thing. Not everybody has a Congress mash, uh, but like what, what kinds of in-house testing do, do a lot of maltsters do? Yeah. So number one, I would say germination tests. It's not complicated equipment. It's simply counting out a hundred seeds, adding four mils or um, eight mils, depending on the test that you're looking at, but adding some water, um, putting it in a consistent temperature out of the way environment, and then each day counting the seeds that have germinated, um, pulling them out. And then over a you know course of three to four days, getting an idea of how many of those seeds are gonna germinate. Uh, if a barley is not viable, if it's not alive, it will not malt. The transformation that happens from a raw barley kernel to a malted barley kernel is entirely based on that kernel's ability to germinate. And then malting is just a balanced way, balancing temperature, balancing time, balancing moisture, um, a balanced approach to germination and then killing it dry uh, to make your malt. But if it doesn't germinate, it's going to make terrible malt. Um, right. And so that's a really critical test for, for maltsters to know that their grain is viable now, or perhaps they've had it in storage for some time to make sure that it's still viable at the time that they're going to malt it. Um, sometimes there's things like dormancy that you need to, you know, give it some time to break, or perhaps uh, you start with really good quality viable barley and then the temperatures and storage get out of whack or something like that. Um, you want to make sure that it's still germinating at the time that it's going to go into the malt house. Okay. Uh, so that one's pretty straightforward. Um, other things that are good for maltsters to do for sure in process moisture. 
Um, so there's uh, analyzers that you can purchase that give you a sense of how much moisture, and, you know, gross overall total moisture in the kernel um, throughout your process. So for example, um, the malting process is, is basically three steps. You're steeping to begin with to bring the moisture of the kernel up. That kind of triggers uh, germination, spring rain conditions, um, and the barley starts to germinate. So that's steeping, and then you go steep out into uh, germination, and then the last phase is kilning. A lot of times maltsters will target certain moisture levels at steep out, also uh, knowing how much moisture has been gained during that steeping process. So that could be anywhere from like 38 to 46% moisture, depending on the malt house, depending on the product that they're making. Uh, and then knowing what your moisture is throughout germination, the goal is to maintain high moisture, but perhaps towards the end, you're uh, letting some of that moisture dry down just a little bit because you're gonna go into kilning. You're gonna have to drive it off anyhow. Um, and on a large, um, lot of barley, if you've lost a percentage of moisture that equates to a decent amount of energy savings in your kiln. Um, so knowing how your, your moisture is progressing through your process, so that's a really good one. Uh, and then a third one that I would list would be friability. Okay. Um, so friability is measured with an instrument called a friabilometer. There's unfortunately only one company in the world that, that makes this particular <laughs> piece of equipment. Um, and it's, you know, it's about probably 7,000, I would say, to purchase this. But there is so much information that you can get off of this very basic test. Um, basically, it's it's just looking at crushability of your malt. Um, it's for about eight minutes. It's taking 50 grams of your malted barley and using a, um, a pressure wheel to push it against a, a rotating sieve. Uh, and then what falls through that are the, the friable portions, the portions that we've broken down the internal structures of the grain and made that um, friable or you know crushable. Um, so it gives you an overall sense of the friability, but then the particles that stay inside the sieve. And if, I know that everyone's listening and trying to imagine what I'm saying based on my description, <laughs> which may, may, might cover it or not. Yeah, we talked about it in an earlier episode too. <laughs> okay. Um, if not, we've got a training video on our website that we did with ASBC, and it shows all of this in detail, shows you the instrument, it shows you how to operate it, all of that. Um, so if my description doesn't cover it, definitely go watch that. Um, but the, the portion that stays inside the sieve, um, you can separate that out into um, whole uh, your pugs and your wugs. So pugs is partially unmodified grain, wugs is wholly unmodified grain. Um, the pugs are tend to be the distal end of the grain. And so if you're seeing a high number there, it can tell the maltster, you know, I need a little bit either more time or more balanced temperature or something to push modification a little bit further into the grain. Uh, where the wugs, the wholly unmodified grain, if you have a high number there, um, maybe that means you need to go back and look at your germination. Maybe you didn't have good germination there and there's a percentage of your kernels that are, are dead or um, not, not germinating. And so that's that's really not a good thing for your malt. Or perhaps your germinations are great, but something in your malting process, your, your temperatures are getting too high or something stressing the grain. Um, but that those three pieces of information, um, your overall friability, you're partially modified if you need to push your modification further. And then um, if you have any grains that aren't germinating is a ton of information that you can get right off the bat when you're you're finished with your killing. Um, and so that's a really good thing for a mallster to be doing in-house. 
if let's say I like I do the friability and like I have a lot of wholly unmodified grains, can I correct for that somehow at that point? Or is it just you're going like, you know, you're scrapping that and you're going back and making a process change and that that other the batch you just finished is not usable? If there if there's a lot of those wholly unmodified grains in there. So the problem with that is that a grain that doesn't germinate is essentially a, a raw barley kernel. So raw barley has very high beta-glucan, even if it's a malting type uh, barley, it's gonna have high beta-glucan in the beginning. Um, so unmodified, unsteeped barley is gonna be potentially in the range of like 1500 to 1800 parts per million beta-glucan, where on a malted barley, typically you're under 200, under 100, um, parts per million, parts per million or milligrams per liter, either way you want to say it, they're, they're essentially the same number. Um, but in any case, unmodified barley is very, very high in it. So if you have a high percentage of those wholly unmodified grains in your final product, even if it's only 5%, um, that's quite a lot. That that high beta-glucan is really going to dose the overall quality of your, of your malt. And so it's not something that can really be cleaned out or, or adjusted post. It's more going back to your process and trying to understand what is causing that so that you can make adjustments for future batches. Do certain types of barley do better for different malt destinations, if you will? Like, is there a certain type of barley that's better for a base malt versus a specialty malt? So I think that's going to be a bit to the prerogative of the, the malt house. There's lots yeah. of malt houses that use one variety. It works very well. And, and another thing to consider with variety is that um, varieties are largely regionally specific. Um, there are some varieties like GD is a good example. If you're seeing it grown in a lot of different places, it's a bit more environmentally stable and can, can work in different environments. Um, but there's a lot of places that Really, there's only a few options for what can work there. And Got so it. you see plenty of malt houses that they work with one variety. They found um, it to work really well for them agronomically, and they can um, pull the lovers within the malt house. So that's, you know, maybe if you're making a Pilsen malt, you're going to slightly lower moisture and you're purposely letting it be a little bit lower on the modified side. Um, and that that plays into that uh, particular malt style well. Whereas if they want to take that same variety and they want to make something more specialty, they allow modification to go a little bit further. Um, that actually pushes into, instead of just breaking down cell wall structures and trying to preserve the starches in the grain, you actually push into starting to modify some of those starches a little bit into sugar. And once you have those sugars present, when you go into the kiln, you're getting more Maillard reactions, more color and flavor formation. And so you can take that same barley variety and the way you treat it in the malt house will allow you to make the different types of malt. Um, so lots of malt houses take that approach, but then there's also malt houses that have the ability to work with multiple different varieties and may find that this one you know, this one really favors a Pilsen flavor profile very well, where this one works really well. You know, maybe this lot's a little bit higher protein and um, I over-modify it a bit and that higher protein to begin with creates more freedom amino nitrogen. That's, you know, material along with your sugars to make those Maillard reactions. So maybe this variety or this lot of barley plays really well for a specialty. So it, it really depends on the, yeah. the maltster and, and what their scenario is. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and I do have another question. It's kind of a two-parter. As a like novice home brewer, 
what should be like the top three, four main key things that matters to them on a COA? And then how would that differ to like a nano brewer or like a small microbrewery? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, a lot of brewers, regardless, are going to put weight on extract. That's essentially like yield to a farmer, um, how much sugar is in this. And then that's going to equate to how much of that malt you need to use. Um, so I think that that's a, a really important number. Uh, after that, I would say, depending on your your setup, protein and S over T is going to give you a really good sense of how modified the grain is. Um, and then some brewers are super sensitive to beta-glucan. I, I think that that really is a brewer to brewer scenario. I would say that probably for the most part on the homebrew scale, that beta-glucan is less of an issue. Um, and then on the commercial scale, it's really going to depend on the brewer and their setup. Some brewers are very sensitive to it and, and you know, won't accept anything over 100 parts per million, where there's other brewers that don't even pay attention to the number. It's just not something that, that affects their process. Going back to barley, and you've mentioned this a couple of times about the like environmental impact on barley breeding. And we spoke about this in a couple of our earlier episodes on barley and malt, but what are some of the ways that weather can impact the barley? So one of the critical things is heat and drought, um, particularly if those things are happening at the point that the barley is going into maturity. So when it's really laying down um, the last, you know, final aspects of that kernel into, into the um, barley head. If it's, if the plant is experiencing stress during that point, it will favor laying down protein versus starch. Um, so in general, you can say that protein and starch balance each other out. Um, typically, if you have higher starch, you're going to have plumper kernels. The extract is going to be higher. It's going to hydrate a little bit easier um, or vice versa. If you have higher protein, if you have a barley that went through stress during um, particularly the maturity phase, um, it's going to have higher protein. That's going to make it harder to hydrate. It's going to be thinner. It's going to have lower extract. Um, and, you know, depending on what your end product is, you can work with that to some extent. Um, if you're if you're making a distiller's malt that really needs to be high in enzymatic capacity, um, higher protein breaks into free amino nitrogen. Those amino acids are building blocks for making uh, enzymes, and so you can work with with barley to an extent that's got higher protein and maybe make specific products. But to make a, a good um, base type malt, typically you're going to want something that is lower protein or moderate protein um, and high starch content. And so for the far majority of uh, barley uh, quality, as far as what will be accepted as a, a malting lot, um, that protein needs to be in check. And so that can cause a lot of problems if you've got stress for the barley during the growing season. One thing that like we all have in common right now is that we're all involved in the malt cup. And um, Hannah and I were part of that like initial group to kind of figure out what this was going to look like. Uh, can you talk to our listeners a little bit about what the malt cup is and like the role that your lab plays in it? Yeah, so the malt cup, yeah, it started in 2019, which happened to be the year that uh, the craft malt conference came to Bozeman. And there was this idea of, you know, this is a malt or craft malt is a burgeoning industry. We would like to have some um, mark of quality, some type of competition. And so it was 
kind of built around the, the concepts of what a, a quality brewing competition was um, or still is. But the, the problem with that for malt is that malt can't just taste good. It has a function that it needs to perform in the brewery. Um, it needs to provide the enzymes for conversion. It needs to provide the starch for uh, sugar for fermentation. Um, it has, you know, free amino nitrogen, which is a good source of uh, nutrition for the yeast. And so all of these functionality pieces of the barley are really critically important. Um, so when we were designing the malt cup initially, so, so generally what the malt cup is, it's a, a malt competition. Um, this year it's in its fifth year. Uh, it's grown each year from just having a single category to now multiple categories. We've got international um, participation in it. Um, but the first stage of the malt cup is just doing a certificate of analysis. Uh, so all the malts are sent in to Montana. We then um, treat it the same as we would any other um, sample that's coming in from, a, from an exterior malt house, uh, produce a certificate of analysis for it. And then each malt style that is um, being judged that year has a, a baseline criteria of what it would need to um, adhere to for a COA for that style. Um, so the malts that are hitting that target the closest then advance into the, uh, the next stages. Um, the second stage is all about sensory. If the, if the first one's all about COA, then we're gonna put some focus on the sensory. We want malts that are functional, but we also want things uh, that have excellent sensory aspects. Uh, and so that's the second round. At the third round, judges are then given the COA and their sensory um, personal sensory evaluations. Um, they're put into panels that are balanced with um, encompassing knowledge of both sensory and quality analytics because there's lots of folks that are strong on one side or the other, not necessarily both. Um, so we have balanced panels and they get all the information and make their final evaluations based on the full picture for the malt. How many well, would you say, I don't, if you're allowed to answer this, but how many would you say, or maybe percentage-wise, like don't pass the first COA round? Um, so we did, um, so the Craft Malt Conference just happened a couple weeks ago, and we did have uh, the that presentation, a live presentation, which is recorded. And if it's not yet, it should be very soon, a link for that on the um, craftmalting.com uh, website on the malt cup. There's a link to that. And we do go through all of the stages and how many samples and a lot more details of what the whole process looks like for anyone that's interested. Um, but roughly in that first analytical round, about two thirds of the, the samples move through. It's pretty good. Yeah. How many samples did you, I, I'm sure it's, it's all this is on that craftmalting.com as well, but how many yeah. samples so, did you get this year? This year we had 90 samples. Um, nice. They were from six different countries. Um, we had what was it, three different provinces and I forget how many states, but a pretty, pretty good that's coverage cool. across the U.S. That's super uh, cool. representation wise. And that's so cool. You just try all these malts from all these different countries too, like, mm -hmm. like for yeah. you, like just to be able to like, oh, it's, wow. it's just really a cool big sensory that, thing. Yeah. Craft malt is, is growing for sure in the U.S. I'd say that we're at least a decade or more behind what craft brewing is. Um, but in the context of the world, uh, the U.S. is really, North America is really pushing the envelope for craft malt. And so there's a lot of countries that are that are looking to the U.S. and North America for kind of a structure and, you know, 
information and knowledge and support. So we have quite a few international members that are that are part of the Craft Malsters Guild. And so it's really cool to see participation from them in the Malt Cup. And could For you sure. explain to our listeners like the difference between craft malt and maybe not craft malt? So as far as the Craft Malsters Guild, what they give is a definition. Um, it's very akin to the difference between craft beer and not craft beer. Um, it's going to be a scale uh, locality and um, individually owned, you know, small, yeah. local. Has a kind of like the Brewers Association, 50% ownership kind of things, little parameters like that. Yeah. For, for, so this is the small guy in the malt world. Yes. Most yes. of the time. I know. Um, and during my time with the guild, one thing that I got asked a lot, and you brought this up just now in terms of craft malt growing, both within the U.S. and internationally, um, like I would, you know, field questions from, let's say, somebody in Florida wanting to know if he could grow barley or somebody in India or someone, I think one time from like Slovakia, uh, where, you know, people were wanting to grow barley because they either it was the locality thing, they wanted to create that kind of local supply chain, or they, uh, like, I remember the gentleman I spoke to from India, like they got six row barley. And they, for craft brewing, they, you know, they obviously wanted more two row and they wanted to know, like, what, what are the requirements for being able to grow barley? So let's say that I, I come to you and I say, Hannah, I'm really interested in finding out if I can grow barley in my area, what, like, what are some of the questions you would ask? So, I mean, the, the first thing is that although, you know, we're, we're in Montana and we are breeding for varieties that will do well regionally, um, it's, you know, it's challenging for us to test for things that are challenges in other places. So for example, uh, we do do disease screening of our lines. Um, Montana's fairly dry and, Disease pressure, for example, fusarium is less of an issue for us. Climate change is coming. That's an issue. It's definitely something that we're conscious of and breeding for. But to try and do that disease screening in Montana is actually a challenge. Like to get the conditions to create that disease um, is really a struggle. So a lot of times our, our um, screening like that, we will send to external places so that they can look at the varieties and see how they perform um, in that sense in an environment where they can create that. So it is challenging, you know, for some of the folks that reach out to us and, and want recommendations on varieties. And it's, you know, the, what we've bred for is not necessarily going to work for everyone. Um, so I would say to those folks, you know, looking to your local area, are there, are there any if there's a barley program, that's fantastic. But if there's not a barley program, what are your extension agents? What are what are your other you know similar resources that might be able to to help you uh, with more knowledge about what um, what considerations to make there? Uh, a lot of times, if you don't have anything like that, it's down to you know if you really want to make this work, then uh, trying to identify some potential options, and then either yourself or working with someone to grow test plots of that. Um, and start doing local evaluations to see what varieties do well, what don't um, in, a, in a very direct kind of evaluation. Right. Okay, cool. And I think the what we'll wrap up with is having you tell us a little bit about the advanced class in craft malting technology that is offered through the Craft Maltsters Guild, um, but you are one of the main instructors for that, correct? Yeah. So yeah, tell yeah. us about that. 
yeah, so the Craft Maltsters Guild is definitely, they have a focus on providing um, quality education for, for members and the community at large. Uh, we do have two courses that we offer now. Uh, the advanced course in craft malting is one. So that's a four day um, in-person lecture style with a pretty intensive lab component uh, that goes through all the aspects of barley. So um, starting with like North American supply chain, um, looking at barley um, growth characteristics, agronomics, um, things to consider like fusarium, uh, quality aspects. Uh, it then goes into pretty intensive engineering aspects. What are the types of malts, um, malt house you can have? What are the different approaches to malting? What are the target numbers you're trying to hit? Um, what are the things to watch out for? Uh, it then goes into aspects of malt quality analysis, how to um, evaluate a COA, what the, the parameters are that are being measured, how those things are being measured. Uh, and then also goes into some pretty good detail on, on brewing and what it means to make a quality malt that will work well for brewing. Um, kind of a sense of if you're a monster, how do you communicate with your brewer? How do you um, set them up for success or troubleshoot with them or make sure that, that um, there's a good uh, communication level between the two? Uh, the other course that we offer is a, a two-day course. It's for a two-day malt for brewers and distillers. And so that would be if you are a brewer or a distiller and want to gain better understanding of what the malting process is and um, what goes into that. And then also how to use the product once it gets to your facility, how to store it, how to um, how to use a COA to evaluate the malt and incorporate that into your process. Um, how to do hot steeps so that you can either recipe development or identifying new products that will work for you. Um, how it goes into things like milling, um, how to adjust your mills or what, what you're <laughs> looking for in your milling to create a good product. Uh, and so that's a, a two-day intensive course, and it also has a, a pretty decent um, lab uh, aspect that's included with it. Nice. And I, I had to giggle about the mill being adjustable because anyone who's listened to us talk about uh, milling has heard me be like, your mill is adjustable, adjust it. <laughs> yes. uh, so that's, see everyone, it's important. That's what, <laughs> even Hannah said it was important. Yep, it is. It's very important. <laughs> so if uh, somebody wanted to learn about either one of those classes, where would they go? Uh, so if you go to craftmalting.com, um, under events, uh, there's a section called classes and workshops. And so both of those are there. Um, don't have the next one scheduled yet. Our, our typical goal is to have the advanced class as a um, add-on to the craft malt conference. So for example, we just finished up our last um, offering of it as part of the craft malt conference that happened late March. Okay. Cool. And I have taken that class. I'm not from Hannah. I think actually, were you in, did you audit the class that I did? Wait, did maybe that was it. I took it in 2018. Okay. I think that was that at Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech. Yep. Yep. That was the last year that it was taught by um, Aaron and Patrick. And then mm -hmm. 2019, when the class was in Bozeman as part of the conference, um, Patrick, Aaron, and I taught it uh, all three. And then the following year, Aaron, um, step back in the following year after that, Patrick stepped back. So now it's a class that's taught by myself um, and Hugh Alexander, who is a, a very well-versed monster from Scotland. 
Yes, Hugh Alexander oh. is a delightful person. I think he's one of those people that every time um, you're you're around him, he's yeah, he's he's just so good at talking about barley and malt and so entertaining and yeah, just a just a delightful person to be around. Very much so. Yes. <laughs> All right, great. Well, Hannah, if people want to learn more about you and about the lab, where should they go? Uh, so our website is uh, www.montana.edu backslash barley breeding. We have uh, our resource center is listed right up front there, and we do try and curate lots of information. Um, there's links for whether you're a grower, a maltster, or a brewer and distiller. There's also aspects in the website that cover our breeding program, what our targets are, what the varieties are from our program. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much, Hannah, for joining us today. We appreciate your time. And thank you, everyone, for listening. You can find us on um, social media at False Bottom Girls on Instagram and Facebook. You can email us, falsebottomgirls at gmail.com. You can visit our website, falsebottomgirls.com. So again, thank you for your time, Hannah. Uh, This was, I think this was a really good discussion. And you're like, you're, you're just so knowledgeable. And it just all like, smoothly comes out. (laughs) I know. Thank you so much. It was it was great to chat with you guys, and I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Yeah, really thank you. This has been False Bottom Girls. And we make the brewing world go round.